The following message was recorded at Fountain of Life Fellowship in Fountain Valley, California. For more information, visit www.folfcrc.com. Let's pray. Ask for God's help. I need it this morning. Heavenly Father, We just admit that we are sitting here in your presence, that you know us. And Lord, it's a, uh, it's a joyful thing, but it's a serious thing to come before you, to realize that you are holy, you're eternal. You've made us, designed us, Lord, and you know us. You, you see through it all. You know it all. As we come before you this morning, Lord, we, we hear your law. We hear what you want what's good for us, how you've designed us, Lord. And in many ways, it's hard to hear that. So Lord, we pray that your Holy Spirit would be with us, draw us near through Jesus Christ, convict us where we need to be convicted. Um, pull us in, Lord, in your grace, with your love, that we might receive what you wanna give us today as our wonderful Father, who meets all of our needs. So meet our needs now, even as we, as we hear your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We are working through the Ten Commandments, and honestly, it's been tough in some ways. Um, these go deep many times, and, and sometimes they open up a lot of pain. That's certainly true for the commandment we're gonna look at this morning. But even though it's difficult, it's good. It's so good, it's worth it because we remember these are spoken to us by the God who has made us and the God who loves us. And in his grace, these commands, they're not a straitjacket. They are our freedom. God saves his people from slavery. And these commands are what it looks like to get the slavery out of the slave. And today we are on the seventh command Maybe you heard it. God does something today in this command that no one is allowed to do in our cultural moment. He actually puts limits on sexual expression. And he says, you shall not when it comes to certain sexual behavior. You shall not commit adultery. Well, I, I just got to tell you, I was buried this week as I prepared for this. And uh, can't hope to touch on all the impl implications this command brings. But I do want to follow just kind of the same pattern we've done with the other commands. Um, think of these as scenes, if you want. First scene, we want to get at the heart of what the command means, see why it's so important, and then confess how we break it. That's scene one. See what it means, see why it's so important, confess how we break it. Scene two, most importantly, we want to see how Jesus fulfills it. This is our only hope, and it's a great hope. We see how Jesus fulfills it. And then scene three, just some thoughts on how to follow Jesus in this command because he's so worthy of it. I mean, my goal is that you would be so um, amazed by Jesus and thrilled by Jesus that your joy in Jesus' love for you would be the motivation that draws you in to keeping this command. So that's what we want to do. 
Before that, though, I feel like there's this, this need to address this kind of fundamental decision we all have to make. And here's what I mean. Uh, in the second half of the Ten Commandments, we're, speaking, we're thinking especially of how to love our neighbor. Uh, Jesus said this, right? That, uh, many Christian thinkers have seen it. The first four commands focus on honoring God and how to love our God. Next six commands focus on uh, the horizontal, how to love our neighbor. So wouldn't you agree that to love someone well, you have to have an idea about what is good for that person? You think that's right? To love someone well, you have to know something about what is good for that person. Uh, one illustration. Do you love an alcoholic by giving him another drink? He might say, don't you love me, right? He wants it. Part of you might think, well, I want to be a loving person. I don't want to be judgmental. I'll give him another drink. Come on, friends. Is that love? It's not love. Um, do you love a child by only feeding him whatever he wants to eat? Every parent's like, no. It's because you know something of this person's design and what's actually good for them. So to love someone effectively, you have to have an idea on their design and what's good for them. So here's the big question. What is the nature of human design? That's, that's the fork in the road in our culture right now. What is the nature of human design? So on one hand, many are espousing today that human beings should define and invent themselves. You decide what's good for you based on your inclinations and preferences. You need to be authentic and follow the authority of your feelings. If you believe that, okay, what is love then? Encourage people to do that with as few limitations as possible. That's what love would be in that case. Is that true? Is that what's good for us? Are we self-invented, self-created? Should I follow the authority of my own preferences, my own feelings? On the other hand, there's another way to look at this, right? Genesis 1.27. It's amazing how many of these commands you look back to God's design. What did God say? God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Here we see that we are designed people. We're designed with incredible dignity and value. We are male and female in the image of God. But do we invent ourselves? No. We don't invent our identity. Identity is something we receive from the God who made us. Now, if that's true, then love is not to follow the authority of your own inclinations. It's not what you're designed for. Love is to know what God has said, to believe that and accord yourself with what he said, because he made you. He's good. He designed you, and his laws are for your benefit. So you can see, you can see how that first choice makes all the difference when it comes to a command like this right? If you take the side of self-invention, the Bible, and especially what it says about human sexuality, is going to seem oppressive to you. 
Because that idea is going to be like, I invent myself, I follow my own authority, and the Bible is going to say, no, you're not the authority. You're not self-invented. That's a myth. That's a lie. Um, But if you are convinced that God has designed us in his image, that he's a good God, and that his laws and his ways fit our design, then you'll find the Bible to be liberating to you. You will find these commands to be beautiful to you because they are your freedom. They are life. They fit with your design. Now let's get into what the command means. This is uh, kind of scene one. What it means, why it's important, how we break it. What does it mean? Well, we heard, thou shalt not commit adultery. I just want to remind you, last week we saw the command, do not murder. It meant a lot more than just don't stab and kill somebody you don't like. Now, does it include that? Yes. But it's far more broad than that. Remember, it prohibits actions that lead to the destruction of human life through malice, carelessness, or negligence. Because people are made in God's image, we're responsible for one another. We want to protect, serve, and love one another. So, so do not murder. It's far more than just make sure you don't stab somebody you don't like and kill it. No, it's, it's a command to honor God by honoring his image in your neighbor. Wow. Okay. In the same way, do not commit adultery. You can think, well, when you're married, don't sleep with someone you're not married to. Well, does this command include that? Yes. Is that it? No way. This command is about sexual integrity according to God's design in every aspect of your life. Every aspect of your life. If you want to see even how the Torah uses this, read Leviticus 18, you'll see it's a broad sweep on having integrity with the value and the power of your sexual practice. We want integrity. So so the bottom line, just to sum it up, this command means that sexual practice is to be reserved exclusively for the covenant of God's design for marriage. That's what this command means. And anything else fits in that category of what you shall not commit Why is it so important? Why is it so important? Have you ever noticed how much the Bible seems to care about this? Especially you read the epistles. It seems like every single one. Jesus wants to talk about this. The Bible's always talking about our sexual practice. Well, there's a a theme here all throughout Scripture, and it goes like this. What you worship is going to define how you practice your sexuality. And how you practice your sexuality is going to show you who you really worship. I'll say that again. It's the themes throughout the Bible. What you worship, in other words, this is where you find your identity. This is what you live for. This is what you, this is what you see as giving meaning, life, purpose. What you worship, that's going to define your practice of sexuality. And your practice of sexuality is going to show you, no matter what you say about who you worship, your practice of sexuality is going to show you who you actually worship. So let's walk through this a little bit. 
Biblically speaking, a major picture of God's relationship with his people is the covenant of marriage. Look what God says in Isaiah 54, verse 5. It's really an amazing thing. For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. The Holy One of Israel is your redeemer. The God of the whole earth he is called you see why this is amazing. It shows you that God is personal. It shows you the depth of his passion and his love for his people. They, that he's invented this human institution, marriage, to show you something about himself. He loves us like that. He's jealous for us like that. He knows us like that. I mean, it's kind of a, it's, a, it's an honor. It's, it's sober. It's beautiful that God would love us like that. And this theme is even further expanded in the New Testament in Ephesians 5. I'm sure you know the church, the community of those who trust Jesus. What are we called? We're called the bride of Christ. What an incredible standing we have as God's people to be loved like this. Moreover, in the book of Revelation, you know how, you know how heaven is described? It's described as the ultimate wedding feast. Look at Revelation 19.9. Blessed are those who are invited to what? The marriage supper of the Lamb. It's a little picture of heaven. We finally get to see the one who loves us like this face to face. On the flip side, when the people of God worship idols, what do the prophets call it? Here's just one example. You can read Isaiah, you can read Ezekiel, you can read... A lot of the prophets, but here's one example, Jeremiah 3.9. First, it seems strange. Look what he says about God's people. Because she took her, what? Whoredom? Lightly, she polluted the land, committing adultery with stone and tree. You read that the first time, you're thinking, what are you talking about? Stone and tree are ways to worship idols. Not Yahweh, not the God of the Bible. So you make an idol with wood. You make an idol with stone. It's not talking about literal physical adultery here. It's talking about an adultery of your worship. God is so passionate for our hearts. It's like he's our husband. We're the bride. And so when we go to anything other than him to be God to us, the illustration he wants to give us for how important, how, how deep this is, he wants to give us the illustration of adultery. That's what it's like to him. We cheated. So the, our relationship with God is a covenantal relationship. He's a faithful God and he wants all of our devotion, right? If you worship the God of the Bible, well, now you ask, well, what does that have to do with sex? Good question. It has everything to do with sex. Because not only does, the, does God want to define how we handle our sexuality, our sexuality exists uh, in order to glorify God in a certain way because the Bible is going to teach you that sex is the body-making covenant. Sexual practice is the body-making covenant covenant. Maybe you doubt me on this. I think you already know it. 
sometimes when I'm having conversations like this with people, um, I'll say, um, would you care if your boyfriend shook another girl's hand? And usually she'll say no, okay? And then then I'll say, if it's appropriate, if that's what we're talking about, would you care if your boyfriend slept with someone else? And unless the heart is really scarred up, what's that person gonna say? Would you care? Yeah, I'd care. Why? It's just your body. Shake a hand, no big deal. Sexual practice, no big deal. Why do you care? Because your heart knows it's, it's not no big deal. You know, you know it means commitment. You know this. You know it means exclusivity. You know it means loyalty. You know it means vulnerability. You know it means trust and safety. You know it's supposed to mean delight. It's supposed to mean the willingness to raise children together. I lost some of you there, but think about it. The Bible's just making clear what we already suspect. Sex is the body making covenant. It's the body making that promise. It's the body saying, I'm wholly yours and you are wholly mine. We are one. We are known. We are safe. We are loved. We are divided in exclusively right here until the end. That's what the body's saying. It's exactly what the Bible says. I could go to several places. I'll just go to one. Look at God's design, Genesis 2, 24 to 25. Highlights God's design for marriage. You have this new exclusive relationship that takes priority over all the others. Genesis 2, 24. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become what? one flesh. Now, is that only talking about physical sex? No, no, not at all. It's supposed to be your whole life, everything about you now. You're united to this person. But see, that's just it. When we take sex outside of marriage, our bodies are saying, I'm all yours all the way until the end. And the rest of our lives are saying, not really. Do you see? It's a lie. It's a breach of integrity. It's a misuse of the other person. So we can see, and this is painful, but we can see why sexual abuse is so wretched and so disgusting to God and so painful because this thing that is meant to be beautiful and kind and valuable is now turned into this weapon to devalue and mistreat people. And I'm telling you, God's anger burns over stuff like that. You can also see why there's really no such thing as casual sex. Call it what you want. Your body is making a covenant. So this command means, what is it about? It means to reserve sexual practice for the covenant of marriage. Why? Well, number one, sex is the body making covenant. And so we want to honor God's faithful covenant to us by having integrity with how we practice our sexuality with our bodies. The second reason it's so important 
sometimes, you know, the first time people hear this, they, they think it's a straitjacket. They think it's, uh, it's control. It's overly controlling. It's just traditional. I think it's love. Now I'm cheating a little bit because Jesus said it's love. Okay. Apostle Paul said it's love. So it's nothing I've invented, but do you believe it? Do you believe that it's love? Do you from the heart believe that the seventh commandment is love? Have you ever imagined what would be different about the world if everybody just kept this command? It's staggering. Sex trafficking would not exist. That's it. That's overwhelming all by itself. We could stop. Pornography would not exist. All the scars from all the things would not exist if we kept this in. There would be far less divorce. Now, listen, there are biblical grounds for divorce. According to Jesus, sometimes it could be the, it could be the right idea. And pornea, adultery, that's one of them, right? It's a biblical ground for divorce. But stats show us that many divorces, a fundamental problem within that relationship is something like pornography. And pornography leads to infidelity. And so now whether you're the victim of this or a criminal in this, it's happened, it affects children. It, it, would, it would be far less with, if we kept the seventh command. If we kept the seventh command, um, what would happen to AIDS? If we kept the seventh command, the abhorred abuse so many have known would not exist. If we kept the seventh command, STI, sexually transmitted infections and diseases would not exist. You know, it's a growing epidemic for teenagers. It, it's, from what I can tell, it's not really making the headlines. There's a lot of other things we're more concerned with. I'm thinking, why are we not concerned with this? I was on a CDC document. It was talking about all these massive health problems, cancer, infertility, growing problem among teens. Um, and so it mentioned all these factors as to why these things was growing. It, on this particular document, do you know what did not make the list as the factors of why STDs are growing? You know, it did not make the list. It's sex. <laughs> I did find one document for adolescents, and it did say, you know, if you want to make sure you don't get an STI or an STD, Abstinence. I'm still waiting for abstinence month. Do teenagers need to hear that you don't have to practice this to be somebody? You don't have to go this way to have an identity or to be valuable. In fact, to have courage in saying, I'm not gonna go this way. It is scientific even if you take all my theology out of it, this would be loving. This is a loving commandment. If we kept this commandment, you know, because sex is a powerful thing. It's like, many have said, it's like fire. If it's in the fireplace, it, 
It's beautiful, it's warm, it's life-giving. If it gets out of the fireplace, you can burn your city down. And so this seventh command, yes, it is part of how we love our neighbor. It really is. To reserve sex for the covenant of marriage, it would give safety to women in new ways. It would give children present fathers. It would make us healthier emotionally. It would make us healthier physically. It would make us happier. Do I even dare say this? Uh, In her excellent book, Love Thy Body, Nancy Piercy reports, she says, studies consistently show that people who are happiest sexually are, if you watch television, you're thinking, the one-night stand people. The people happiest sexually are married, middle-aged, conservative Christians. (laughs) You, You won't see that in the movies, okay? Could it be true? If this accords with God's design, of course it would be true, generally speaking. All right, well, now as we we think about this command and what it means, why it's important, now we realize, right, how many of us have kept it, how many of us have kept this command, and now we're going to listen to Jesus in the gospel of Matthew. And if you're like me, most of us, you've already heard this part, and you're like, I haven't kept it. But if you're still part of a group who's like, I've kept it, here we go. Jesus in the gospel of Matthew, talking with religious professionals of his day, they claimed to love the law, but more than they loved the law, they loved the idea that they kept the law. And we need to be careful of that, don't we, Christians? It's good to love God's law. Don't fall in love with the idea that you've kept the law. Because if you do that, you're going to be self-righteous. And then you're going to break the law. (laughs) So they softened the law to make it keepable. And they could hear this command and think, well, I've kept the law. Thou shalt not commit adultery. I've kept the law. I have not slept with someone, not my spouse, while being married. Righteous. Okay? And listen to what Jesus says, Matthew 5, 27. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. I say to you, have mercy, that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already done what? Committed adultery with her in his heart. This is devastating. We just remember, we saw it last week. God wants obedience, not not at just this external level, super keepable. He wants love and obedience from heart and in the mind, right? He wants it all the way down. And so Jesus is saying that this tree of adultery grows from the seed of lust. What is lust? Is lust noticing that someone is attractive? No. Um, Is lust even just being tempted to lust? No. It's not a sin to be tempted. It's not a sin to notice someone is attractive. How do you know when it's crossing the line into lust? Well, lust is this demand to see or have something that God has restricted, right? It's an over-desire for something, to see or to have something that God has restricted. So listen, here's, here's the deal. If you're not married to that person, sexual desire for that person is off limits. Not yours. You're not hers or his, depending on the case. 
It's re- no, it's restricted. And so now there's this over-desire. There's no covenant there, so it's adultery. And now just listen, you, before we judge anything in our culture, do you pass this test? I'll just tell you right now, I do not pass this test. By Jesus' definition, I'm an adulterer. And more than once. Thank you for the, thank, thank you for the giggle. It was, de, it was deserved, okay? But now look what Jesus says. Look what Jesus says. You, you thought Jesus was just like always, always gentle, you know? He, okay, he's always gentle. You thought he was always soft or easy. Listen to this. If your right eye causes you to sin, to say, hey, it wasn't a big deal. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. Why would I do that? Well, it would be better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body would be thrown into hell. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut off, throw it away. It would, it's better you lose one of your members and that your whole body go into hell. Now let's understand him accurately. Is he speaking literally about self-mutilation? He's certainly not a figure of speech to, to impress the importance of what he's saying. And by the way, self-mutilation wouldn't work anyway. Um, as Jesus says in another place, the problem is in your heart. Look at Mark 7, the problem's your heart. So frankly, you could amputate nearly everything. And as long as you're still living and breathing, you could find a way to lust, right? He's not being literal about self-mutilation, but he is ve- he's being very clear, isn't he? On the importance of fighting this sin in your life. It's deeply important. It's eternally important. And so Jesus confronts us so deeply, and not just us, but our cultural moment. Jesus just said that following the authority of your inclinations and desires is a great way to make sure you go to hell. It cannot get more profound, fundamental, clear, important than that. So, so friends, what do you think? Is Jesus being harsh? Is he being, is he being mean? Or is Jesus loving us by telling us the truth? He knows our design and he's loving us by telling us the truth. And so, you know, why is this important, so important to Jesus? Well, again, lust denies God's design for the covenant of marriage. We wanna put desires that only belong in marriage onto someone that you are not in marriage with. You're denying God's design. You're denying God's covenant with his people. It's a huge deal. More, I want to say more than that, but additionally, lust turns someone made in the image of God into a commodity, doesn't it? It turns somebody made in the image of God into a commodity. Our culture just sells specifically images of women like it's a side of beef. 
and all that's desirable about her in this kind of context, right? Is how she looks, equipment she has, or deeds she can perform. And you, and you just see it on like, like you've, you see it in Teen Vogue, how teen girls can turn tricks so that they can keep the young man interested in her. Because the implication is obviously if you couldn't do that, what value do you have? We deny the image of God in these people. It's horrible. It's wretched. When I think of my own lust, it's true. All of a sudden, what stands out in that moment of temptation is just what an appearance. And what's forgotten is personhood. Personhood. Jen Wilkins says this. Lust itself is an act of contempt. Reducing someone to a source of sexual gratification and nothing more. If the sixth command, you shall not murder, prohibited regarding our neighbor as expendable, the seventh prohibits regarding our neighbor as consumable. I think that's right. And I'm guilty. And if you're above a certain age, I'm pretty sure we're all guilty. We're all guilty. And we're guilty of hell on our own. Do you see that? That's what I deserve for this breaking of this one command alone. And so now we remember, church, what do you think? Is the law of God a ladder to God? You better hope not, <laughs> right? I mean, so far we've hit seven and now all seven rungs are broken because <laughs> we've broken every single one. They are not a ladder to God. Keeping these is not how you become right with God. It's impossible. No, they're not a ladder to God. It's a mirror exposing to us our need for Jesus. And it's a portrait displaying who Jesus is and how he meets our need. The most precious thing about the Ten Commandments is how Jesus obeyed them completely. He fulfills them. So let's think a moment about his life. Hebrews says, he was tempted in every way, yet without sin. So you imagine, uh, you imagine 18-year-old Jesus, okay? Do you think he noticed any attractive young ladies in Bethlehem? Of course he did. Truly human. Of course he did. Do you think he was tempted? The Bible says he was tempted. He's tempted in every way. And yet, what did he remember? and honor about that young lady. She's made in the image of God. So he valued her. And he remembered God's covenant that he would enable for his people. And so he acted with perfect integrity. You know, this shows us something amazing. Your culture will tell you that your identity is fundamentally sexual expression and Jesus shows you, no, it is not. Here we have 
man living a single life, a chaste life, and the fullest, most important life that ever was lived. He's in no way second class or secondhand, and he shows us that core identity, oh, come on, it's not sexual expression. It's belonging to God and knowing him and living for him. And we, we continue to think of Jesus and how he's faithful to his unfaithful wife. The prophets show us this. Just think, about, just think about us here today. I mean, we, we know, right, a little bit about ourselves. And you think of Jesus' love for us and his happiness to call us a part of his bride. Look at Ephesians 5, 25. And, and, and yes, you know, husbands need to think about this, but for our moment right now, think about Christ from this verse. Husbands, love your wives. And now this verse is about Christ. As Christ loved the church, and what did he do? He gave himself up for her. You've, you've disobeyed this commandment, so have I. What did Christ do for you? He gave himself up for you. He gave himself up for you on a cross that he might, what's he want to do? Sanctify you. you. You think of this aspect of life and sometimes we can feel dirty or tainted or unlovable or no hope. And you see part of Jesus' love is to clean you deeply, is to call you beautiful, to restore your dignity, that he might sanctify her having, sanctify her having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, so he, that he might present the church to himself in splendor. How do you get to be a part of this amazing group of people that Jesus is gonna splendorize? Is that a word? He's gonna make us splendid. He's gonna give us dignity. He's gonna... Pour out his delight on us. How do you get into that group of people? Because sometimes some of us could say, I've experienced too much. I've done too much. I don't belong here. I'm telling you, this is why we go back to the gospel. It's faith. What's the next word, church? Alone. Faith. Alone. Through faith in Jesus Christ, you receive him and all that he has done for you. On the cross, he paid for all our sins and earned our forgiveness. Through faith in him, we receive his righteousness and he heals and restores us. And this is some of the beauty of Jesus. Read the New Testament, read the gospels. You will see that Jesus seems to have this special love to heal those who have broken this command, but also those who have been broken by those who have broken this command. Read his care for that woman at the end of Luke 7. The sinful woman, according to the phrase of that day, that woman, and see how Jesus restores her dignity and receives her and blesses her, transforms her. Read about his interaction with the Samaritan woman in John 4. Read about his redemption for this broken church in Corinth. Realize Jesus, he takes our sin, he also takes our shame. Shame is that sense of being exposed for not good enough. Shame can freeze us. 
Jesus endured the cross, despising the shame. He hung there naked in front of the mockers. He went right through the shame to save you out of yours. And in him, he wants to give you his righteousness, his dignity. He gives you a new name, children of God. So we are able to turn to Jesus and find our identity there, forgiven, clean, full of dignity, no shame in the righteousness of Christ. Look what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, 19. This is mind-blowing. Do you not know that your body, so let's just stop right there. Whose body? Your body. Some of us, you know, you're looking good. You're like, I can see that. Um, the rest of us were like, this, okay? Just wait longer and you'll be there. This, your, your body right now, made of dust going back to where it came from, doesn't fit the cultural whatever about the whatever. Your body, you know what you like and don't like about it. Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you. The third person of the Trinity has taken residence in your body. Your body is valuable. So valuable. This one right here is not just the one 20 years ago. No, this one. Your body is so valuable. So part of understanding this is, is believing that. You are not your own. Verse 20, you have been bought with a price. So you need to see your body is so valuable. It also, guess who your body does not belong to anymore? It belongs to you more than it belongs to most people, okay? But fundamentally, your body belongs to who? Jesus bought you. You have been bought with a price. And he finds your body valuable. So what's the response? Verse 20, you've been bought with a price, so what? Glorify God in what? In your body. So church, when you see the beauty of Jesus in this and what he's done for you and what he gives to you and the dignity he offers you, who we are in him, the value we have in him now because he's so worthy, what do we want to do? I want to glorify God in my body. I want to please God with how I handle my body. And in context for Paul, that's especially sexual integrity. That's what this is in 1 Corinthians 6. I want to honor God with my body if, with sexual integrity. So now we're into the third part. The first thing I'm going to ask, I'm going to ask you, I'm just going to leave this between you and the Holy Spirit, right? If you're a Christian, he's with you right now. What's he telling you he wants from you as you hear his word? I can't hope to know or apply all of that but I believe God can speak to his people. What's he, what's he calling for from you as you hear the truth of who Jesus is and what he wants? 
What does obedience look like for you? Don't cast that aside. But I want to give you a few suggestions I think are worthwhile. Number one, take courage in not bowing before our culture's foolish versions of identity, love, and sexuality. Our culture has God wrong, humanity wrong, the problem wrong, and the fix wrong. Our culture needs Jesus. And people who have his humility, his gentleness, his compassion, his kindness, and his boldness in telling the truth. We need to be people like that. Not bombastic, trumpeting truth. Not wet noodles who won't disagree with the trends. We need courage to stand up for the truth because as we have seen, it is love for our neighbor. This world needs Jesus and his truth. Number two, I'm gonna hit us all in the stomach. I'm gonna hit you in the stomach. We have to kill the porn usage. We have to. The porn industry is a $13 or $13 billion (laughs) industry in the United States. Depending on what institution or study you go to that all these stats change a little bit. We get the point, porn sites get more visitors each month than Netflix, Amazon, and Twitter combined. I'm gonna go ahead and say, that's a lot. And more and more, it's seen as acceptable. Like, of course you do this. Everybody does this. You need to do this. Studies show that porn consumers are more likely to dehumanize women. And that may be the most unsurprising study report in the history of the world. (laughs) Then why did you look at it? Porn is like a drug affecting neural pathways of the brain. It affects your ability, if you have a spouse, to love and engage with your own spouse. One, one, one side said pornography uses, use increases the marital infidelity rate by more than 300%. You want to stay married? This is key. Here's terrible. It depends which place. Here's the terrible number. It depends which, you know, which source you're looking at. Generally speaking, two-thirds of church-going men use porn on a regular basis. So my brothers, we've got to stop. You've got to stop. You've got to stop now. You remember what Jesus said in Matthew 5? If your right eye causes you to sin, what? Pop it out. Why? It's better to lose that thing than to go to hell. Who you worship defines how you practice your sexuality. How you practice your sexuality shows you who you truly Worship. It's got to stop. There are many reasons people go to porn, acceptance, loneliness, boredom, uh, a host of reasons. It's not hopeless. It's not the unforgivable sin. There's only one of those. It's rejecting Jesus Christ till death. God wants to forgive you. God wants to heal you. He wants to give you strength in your struggle but he sure as heck wants you to fight it and fight it hard. 
It is out to get you. It's out to kill you. It's out to ruin future relationships, your relationship now. Turn to Jesus, get help. Maybe the Holy Spirit's leading me to say this because somebody needs to hear this this morning. Get help. At this church, you will not be judged for getting help. You will be helped because many times we cannot do this by ourselves. You've probably tried and you can't stop by yourself. Let's stop. Amen? It's gotta happen. Number three, if you're a parent, disciple your children on issues of sexuality. Never before has it been so essential that parents disciple their children on issues of sexuality. Because if you don't do it, going to church a couple of times is not gonna be enough to handle the tidal wave of schools, libraries, internet, social media, movies, and all the rest. You've got to own your job to disciple your children on this. You gotta disciple yourself on this. You've gotta have a biblical worldview on this. You have a rich biblical understanding on this. You gotta be able to see through the cultural arguments of what's going on. You gotta show that to your children. And then when you mess up and when they mess up, you gotta go to Jesus. Keep going to Jesus. Go to Jesus. Number four, just a couple more. Let's validate godly singleness. Validate the value, validate the value, validate godly singleness. It's not a secondhand thing. You know, in the ancient world, your worth and future was your children. In the modern world, children are a ball and chain now, but your worth is your sexual expression. And so now it's a shame to be a chaste single. Either way, modern world, ancient world, eh. In the kingdom of God, we know that both of those things are myths. They are lies. They're not true. Of course, the life of Jesus spotlights that like nothing else. But multitudes of Christian heroes live satisfied, faithful, wonderful, healthy Christian lives. And so we need to remember human marriage. Yeah, we're supposed to honor the covenant, right? But it's not ultimate. Jesus said, there's no marriage in heaven. We're going to graduate to something different. Our relationship with Jesus Christ face to face. So yes, is godly marriage supposed to be a picture of the gospel? You bet it is. Relationship between Christ and his church. Is godly singleness a picture of the value of the gospel? Does godly singleness honor the covenant? You bet it does, because it says, I'm devoted to Jesus and I live for him. Both parties say, I'm not my own. I've been bought with a price. My body's a temple. It belongs to Jesus. Uh, listen, does, uh, does singleness have its difficulties and its disappointments? Sure. Does marriage ever have difficulties and disappointments? Yes. Does marriage have benefits? Yes. Does singleness have benefits, freedoms? Yes. Some of us get married, all of us are single at some point. The beginning of your life, and many times, right, in God's providence, the end of your life. Singleness is not secondhand. It can honor the covenant. All right, last one. 
If you are married, be generous, self-giving spouses. So I'm gonna read a couple of verses to you that you might not have known were in the Bible. I edited one, okay? Proverbs 5.18. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. A lovely deer, a graceful doe, let her body fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always with her love. And all the married fellows said, Amen. Husbands, let your wife know she's the only one for you and that you delight in her and her alone. Marriage is the fireplace for the fire of sexuality. Or Song of Solomon 4.16. I'm glad this stays a little poetic. Awake, O north wind, and come, O south wind. Blow upon my garden, let its spices flow. Let my beloved come to his garden and eat its choicest fruits. So you know that was in the Bible. All the Christian wives said, amen, amen. Let your husband know how you enjoy belonging to him. Truth, due to physical difficulties or other circumstances, sometimes Sex is not feasible, that's okay. In times like those, that is okay. We give ourselves up for one another and we in our marriages are more than sex. But let's not kind of miss the point. The flip side of you shall not commit adultery. Sexuality is designed for consummating and renewing the covenant of marriage. That's what it is. And marriage is the fireplace for that fire. So 1 Corinthians 7, do not deprive one another. Live in the gift, in the design of what God has made. All right, friends. I mean, you could, you could think of a, a hundred more implications of this command of what it means. Seek the Lord, ask him what he has for you, your life, your time, your place. But we see at least, don't we, that the seventh command is a serious, beautiful thing, and it really is about love. Love for the Lord, his covenant to us, with us. Love for our neighbor. So for his sake, we want to honor his covenant by valuing how our bodies make, make covenant and having integrity. We want to honor God's with our bodies. Honor God with our bodies and mind, heart, with our sexuality. That's for God's glory. That's our freedom. It's the love of our neighbor. And in the end, this command shows us where, you're, where we're all going, and it's a good place. Who's going to come for us? the great husband, Jesus Christ. And we'll hit that feast. We'll be happier than we ever dreamed. We'll see our Lord face to face. Let's pray. Oh Lord, your law is uh, its heavy, it's profound, it's true. And we thank you. Without Jesus, it would just crush us. But we th we're so thankful for Jesus. We're thankful for how he fulfills this how he loves us like this, that we could be his bride, that we could be forgiven, that we could be made righteous, that we could have this dignity, this value. Lord, help us to have integrity in our minds, our bodies, our screens, our entertainment, everything about us. Let us remember that you have bought us with a price and we wanna glorify you in all we are. Let us do this, Lord, as your church here. A fountain of life, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.
Thank you for listening, and we invite you to visit us Sunday mornings here at Fountain of Life Fellowship. For more information, visit www.folfcrc.com.